Our Old Testament scriptures are from 2 Chronicles, chapter 20, verses 13 to 17, which is on page 372 in the Bibles we provide. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord, with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid, and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. This is the word of our Lord. Our epistle reading is from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1, 6, and 32 to 40, and we'll begin on page 10007 in the Bibles we provide. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in the deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This is the word of our Lord. Sermon passage for today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 57 and 58. You found on page 962 in the Bibles we provide. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we pray that you would take your word, add to it your Holy Spirit that would work deeply within our hearts, that this, your word, would be alive and active. It would change who we are and how we see 
and that because of it, we would be the people you call us to be because of your grace, because of your mercy. So Father, open our ears and our hearts and our minds to what you have to say because you alone have the words of eternal life. I have nothing worth saying. So Father, speak your words through me this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you've read the weekly email, you're looking a little surprised right now. The weekly email had a picture of a much more handsome, much older gentleman who's supposed to preach this morning. And so you came in here expecting that Bill Dudley was gonna preach. Yesterday at two o'clock in the afternoon, I had that same expectation. (laughs) I was planning to sit right up there right now. But God does all kinds of different fun things. Uh, Bill Dudley regrets that he can't be here. He got a very violent stomach flu yesterday. I I will spare you the details and descriptions that I got to hear for your sake. So he's not here, so you're stuck with me. So sorry, this is what happens sometimes. We've been talking for the last two weeks. What are the pictures the Bible gives us of the church? Today, I was like, how do we follow that up? Let's talk about the goal of the church. How are we supposed to look? How are we supposed to live as believers in Christ? And as I thought about it, the first thing that kind of came to mind was, was coaching. I used to love when my kids were little to coach them in sports. It just was a fun thing. Sports give so much life lessons, whether you're good at them or bad at them. It's just kind of a fun moment. And there would be those moments, those critical moments at the end of a game when we've got a chance to win. Those were few and far between. So you had to take advantage of them when you got them. Now, let's be honest. We know what we're supposed to say. We just want to have fun. We just want everybody to have a good time. You want to win. When you get a chance at the end, you really do want to win the game. So as a coach, that's where the volunteer coach earns his pay, right there. It's that moment where you're trying to give the speech, the inspirational moment that remember the Titans, they won't get another yard moment for these little kids. It's a, it's a work in progress. The first time I'm like, what motivates kids? Pizza motivates kids. So I was like, here's the thing, guys. If we win this game, we go down and we win, pizza's on me. This is what you learn. If you tell kids pizza or ice cream, I tried both. When they're out playing, you know what they're thinking about? Pizza and ice cream. I can't tell you how many times the ball would just be like, the kid's like sitting there going, mm, right by his head. It's like, and there we are. So we needed a new motivation, new tactics, new ideas. So finally, after much trial and error, I thought about what do I, what would I need if I'm in your shoes? It's like, I need to be reminded. Reminded what to do and reminded who I am. So I pulled them together. I'm like, you guys, we've done this a thousand times in practice. We've run these plays. We've played this defense. You know what to do. And you guys have each other's backs. You guys have been such a sweet team together. You love each other. You care for each other so well. You can trust each other. And I would love to say that every time I gave that really impassioned speech, we won. We didn't. But we won more than when I said pizza or ice cream. So we're going to say that was the winner. But it was that idea for us as well. That's what Paul's doing here. In this letter to the Corinthian church, at this very integral and important time in the history of the life of this church, he wants to do a couple things. He wants to remind them what to do. He wants to remind them who they are. And as we've talked about two weeks ago when we talked about the body of Christ and we talked about this church in Corinth, what we remember is this was a very influential city with great wealth. And so this church had an opportunity to be salt and light in a very important place. 
But because of the wealth of the community around them, because of the culture, they had been co-opted and corrupted by it. So they didn't look any different than the people out there in the world. So as Paul's writing this letter to encourage and remind them what Jesus did and how they should live, at the very end, right before he does his greetings, this is like his last speech. This is his getting down on his knees with the church around him and saying, this is what you need to hold on to. Here's who you need to be. Here's who you are already. Here's what you should do as you live out your life. And I'm a big believer that God's word is living and active that is sharper than any double-edged sword. It is applicable today. If this is just a letter written 2,000 years ago to a church back in time, let's all stop wasting our time and let's go home. But when God's word says it's alive and active, not was alive, not was active, but is today, then when God inspired this word to go forth and to be written, he knew about us. He knew about our culture. He knew what's going on. So these words apply to us as much as they did to them. And he knows our culture even now. We live in a culture that is constantly fighting us. There was a time when it cooperated with us. There was a time when the culture was okay with Christianity and the church. They were happy to let Sundays be like days for church and Wednesday nights. They didn't really push against the things we said or did. They're like, well, I may not agree with it, but it's okay. We don't live in that world anymore. We, if you declare yourself to be a Christian or declare yourself to be a word evangelical, which we'll touch in a second, you know what it is? It's dirty words now. There is these expectations and thoughts about you for claiming Jesus Christ. A word like evangelical is beautiful and wonderful when it's in its truest form. It means someone who believes in the truth of the gospel and the importance of the gospel going forth. I say that word to you and it conjures up all kinds of images. It's someone who's intolerant. It's someone who's narrow-minded. It's someone who believes in a political platform of gun control and no immigration and all these other things. That's what an evangelical has become. And that is who we are if we trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are it a critical time in the history of the church and the life of the church in the United States of America. So these words apply to us as well. How will we be the salt and light that we're called to be? What are we to do in the midst of a culture that no longer cooperates? So those are the two things we're gonna look at today. And because it's only two verses, I made Lola read all these difficult names and all these verses, and I gave myself two. I'm so sorry, Lola, I'm so, so sorry. We're gonna look at it word by word. So what is it that we're supposed to do? First thing he says to us is to be steadfast. And this idea of being steadfast is a matter of the mind. It's making up your mind of what you're gonna do. Because this time, this church would not decided, will they follow Jesus or will they follow their culture? Who will determine what's right, what's best? They had not made up their mind. It's that moment when Joshua, when he gets with the people of Israel, as they get ready to go into the promised land and live, what does he say? Choose this day whom you will serve. You have to choose in your mind, what am I gonna do? Who am I gonna be? To be steadfast. The picture is Jesus as he's going to the cross. It said he set his face to the cross. Nothing would stop him. Nothing would get in his way. This was his mission. This was his purpose steadfast. He had made up his mind. For you and I, have we made up our mind? Would we say that we're steadfast? 
when it comes to Christ and his word, his people? Because what he means by this is this is an all-in proposition. This is not something we just kind of put our toe in the water or we kind of do half time. If I'm honest, most of the time with me and the Lord, I want to do what I want to do and I want him on the side of it. I want him to bless it and I want him to just barely enter in in the places where I want him to. Jesus goes, that's not what's allowed. That's not what I meant. I didn't say I'm gonna follow you. I said, you're gonna follow me. Which means it's an all in proposition. You think about Revelation when he warns the churches, he says, don't be lukewarm, be hot or cold for sure. But choose, don't play the middle. Don't do just enough to kind of think, oh, I'm sort of a Christian, I guess, I don't know. Too often, that's what we want. We want the bare minimum. I want the very least amount. What's the lowest common denominator of what I have to do? How much do I have to go to church? How much do I have to give? How much do I have to read? How much do I have to pray to be in the good box? And the truth is he's saying, no, it's all encompassing. Steadfast, choose who you will serve. Where steadfast is a moment of the mind, this idea of being immovable is the body. Don't just be steadfast, be immovable. And the difference in kind of this picture is like a really windy day and the difference between a tree and a leaf. Think about it, when a leaf gets detached from the tree, it's gone. The wind can take it wherever it wants to. But a tree, no matter how hard the wind blows, no matter how much it rains, it stays. It's got deep roots. It's got a foundation. It stands firm. And we so often in Paul's letters, that's our encouragement, stand firm. Stand in what you believe. And we have to do that because we need a foundation and our foundation is God's word. That's what it is for us. That's what we stand on. That's the only thing that's never gonna change. It's the only thing promised to work. It's the only thing eternal and immovable. It's the only thing that's truth. And we live in a world who doesn't want truth. They want my version of the truth. They don't want truth. They don't want absolute truth for anyone. What we have called to stand on is the truth of God's word. So to do that, we've got to know God's word. How can we stand on that which we don't know? Which is why so often when we encourage you as Christians and I encourage myself, I need to spend time in God's word every day. It's not to check something off the to-do list and feel better about myself. It's because I need to understand what it says if I'm going to live it out. Because we have an enemy who knows God's word. Remember Jesus's temptation. What does Satan do? He throws God's word at Jesus to try to tempt him to sin. How easy would it be for us to hear someone misinterpret God's word and go, well, it sounds pretty good to me. If we don't know and understand this word deeply for ourselves, we can get caught up. We can get lost in it and pulled astray from it. It has to be what we have stand firm on. It is our foundation. And it's called to us to stand firm. There's this beautiful picture you see from Ephesians 6 right here. It's talking about all the armor of God that we put on. And he gives us this great picture of when you're up against temptation, when you're fighting against the world, put on the armor of God. And at the end of it, he says, then once you've done everything to stand, stand. Not just get prepared to stand, now it's actually time to stand. And it's easy for me and us as Christians to do everything necessary to stand and then not stand. 
It's like we do everything we can to prepare to fight against temptation. Temptation comes and we roll over like a puppy dog and we show our belly to it. It's like we're done. The point for us is to stand and we don't stand alone. We stand in the power of the Holy Spirit. We stand in the power of God in his word. We stand as brothers and sisters together. That's why accountability is so important. We can stand firm as the people of God. But we have to stand, ultimately, you have to stand. When I was um, a freshman in high school, I played football at a school somewhere close to here. Um, and I was about a five, eight, maybe 155 pounds, perfect football size, as you can imagine. Um, so this was spring practice, freshman year. We were having a scrimmage against a team from Morristown, okay? First off, I'm an offensive player. I like to catch the ball. I don't like to like tackle people. That was kind of other people's job. I didn't want to do that. They put me on punt team, which required tackling. I like to tackle people in a kind, nice way. I like to run beside them and be grab their jersey and like lean them nicely to the ground. I don't want to get hurt and all that other stuff. Look at it was pain. So the coach like, no, no, no. We need to get you ready for this. So we went through all these drills where I've got to like stay low, get your shoulder, get ready, lean, all this, ready to tackle somebody. And in practice, I got to tackle smaller guys. Awesome. That was great. If I could do that all the time, I would love it. In this scrimmage, we're going up against a team from Morristown, like I said, and the punt returner's name was James Littleman Stewart. Good. See, I didn't know how much I was going to have to explain that to people. For those that don't know, James Littleman Stewart was 6'1", 230-something pounds. He played tailback at the University of Tennessee, and when he left, he was the all-time leading rusher in Tennessee history. So put that guy up against 5'8", 155-pound me. So on the punt, punt, he's coming at me. I'm thinking through, what are all the things I have to do? Square my shoulders, get ready, low base, ready to put head up so you don't want to tread down. Okay, get ready to lean, get ready to lean. Here's what I want to tell you. I want to tell you that went really well. I want to tell you that I hit him like no other person has ever done and he fumbled, we scored a touchdown. I want to say that to you. But also know not to lie to you. I have never been run over like that in my entire <laughs> life. I mean, no exaggeration, he stepped on my chest. <laughs> I don't even know how you do that. So if you can imagine for a moment, because I can imagine it very clearly, I'm laying on the ground and I'm just like, come Lord Jesus, come. It's time, <laughs> it was good, had a great ear, it was awesome. And I hear a whistle blow and the coach like, great job. I'm like, what? He tripped on my face mask. <laughs> so he stepped on my chest, and in the process of literally running over me, he tripped on my face mask, and he tackled him. The coaches were thrilled, you did it! I'm like, no, I didn't, no. Why do I tell you that story? <laughs> because just because you stand firm doesn't mean it's always gonna work out the way you want. It won't. You'll stand up for Jesus. You'll do all the right things. You'll say all the right things. And if our expectation that in the end, it's gonna work out exactly how we want, we will live lives full of disappointment and discouragement. You are called to be faithful, not successful. You are called to stand firm, whatever may come. And the only way we stand firm is if we truly believe. So we talked about in the Hebrews passage, what is faith? Believing that God exists and he earnestly rewards those that seek him. 
If you believe that, you'll stand no matter what the world throws at you. You'll stand firm. So be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Notice these words, always. This is not just something we do on Sundays. This should be every part of our lives that always, at all times, we're looking to do the work of the Lord. Because if you and I claim to be Christians, if we claim that we are followers of Jesus Christ, you are in a fishbowl. And the culture is constantly looking at you, looking at me, looking at our lives, listening to our words and making determinations about Christ. So if Christians do this, then that must be okay with Jesus. If they live like this, or if they talk like this, or if they do like this, if this is who they are, then it must be okay. And for us, that's a scary thing. It is scary for me. It is scary to watch how much my kids picked up who I am. Like it's frightening to me, the things that they picked up. We are always on display if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So we should always be looking for ways we can serve wherever we are, wherever we go, with your neighbors, at the grocery clerk, with the person who's like pumping gas beside you, with the people at your work, the people in your neighborhood, the people here. Always looking to serve the Lord and abounding, not just a little, not just dabbling in it, abounding. The picture we get is Jesus, when he fed the 5,000, when he's done, there were 12 basketfuls left over. One for every unbelieving disciple, this abundance. John 10, 10, I have come that you might have life and life to the full. Jesus gives us in abundance. And so he longs for us to take that abundance and serve out of it. As he gives us more of his word, more of his spirit, encouragement, help, guidance, that we would abound in the work of the Lord. That we would do it, it would come out of our pores. We almost couldn't even help ourselves it would overflow out of our lives from what he's done for us, it would overflow this work of the Lord. Then no matter where you are and where you go, you're always looking for where's a way that I can follow Jesus here, no matter the cost. And to do that, we have to understand what the work of the Lord is. I can tell you right now, if we wanted to study what Jesus did, the work of the Lord, it would take us from now until Jesus comes back. Couldn't cover it all. So how do I even hope to do it in a minute and a half? by boiling it down to two things. Jesus always brought love and he always brought truth to those he encountered. Just boiling down what his work was is he brought love and truth to those he encountered. And for us, we typically will err on one side or the other. Either we just wanna love people. I just wanna love people. I just wanna love them. I wanna care for them. I wanna help them. I wanna do that. Or I wanna give truth to people. Like I'm a prophet. I need to speak truth. They need to know what's going on. That's what they need to do. The problem is, can you really love someone if you don't tell them the truth? And can you really give them truth if they don't know you love them? Jesus understood that. He was always about both. Great example, the woman caught in adultery. They're trying to trap Jesus to this idea of whether he's going to obey the law or not as the Pharisees stand there. And Jesus, knowing what's going on, and because he's perfect, and because he understands this, he brought truth and love. He says to the Pharisees, any of you who are without sin, cast the first stone. That is truth, but that is a loving truth. That's a, you guys aren't perfect. You aren't without sin. And what does he say to the woman? 
They don't condemn you, neither do I condemn you. But leave your life of sin. It wasn't just enough to love her and embrace her. It was like, you've got to leave your life of sin. This is killing you. Almost killed you here. We have to be people who can do both, that we can love people enough to tell them the truth. And before we try to tell them the truth, we got to learn how to love them. We got to learn how to love them. Because let's be honest, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to make both sides mad. That's what Jesus did. There were people on both sides of the equation who were mad at Jesus almost all the time. You're gonna have some people who go, how could you be so gracious and merciful? How can you not hold people accountable for their sins? Don't you know they're just gonna abuse that, be licentious in the way they live now? Or you're gonna have the people who go, I can't believe you're trying to hold the truth. There is no truth. And if there is truth, I have a truth, you have a truth. There's nothing absolute for us all to believe in. And when you tell me that, what you are is intolerant, which is the worst word that we can hear in our society, it seems like nowadays. You will make people mad on both sides if you truly follow Jesus. Because it was about being loving and truthful with them. And as a reminder, what are we? We are the aroma of life to those who are being saved, but we are the stench of death to those who are dying. We want to be the aroma of life. We love that idea. But this idea that we're the stench of death to people who are perishing. We don't want that. So we want to back way off. I don't want to really stand firm. I want to be flexible to move however I want to because I don't want to make anybody mad. I don't want anybody to think bad things about me. And yet they did to our Savior all the time. All the time. Always abounding in the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain. The lie that Satan wants to tell you this morning is everything that you do for Christ is useless. The time you spend in his word doesn't make a difference. The time you spend in church doesn't matter. Your prayers aren't heard or answered. The ways that you serve, the ways that you give, all this stuff you do makes no difference at all. That's what your enemy wants you to believe. Would you believe just quit doing it because it doesn't matter. But God's word tells us your labor is not in vain. God is using all the things you're doing to accomplish a purpose. You are planting seeds in the lives of people in your life and he has intentionally brought people to be a part of you and close to you that you may reflect his glory. But if you never see fruit, is it okay? One of my favorite Bible characters is Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah. You read his books, Jeremiah Lamentations. For as best as we can discern, as people who studied him way better than I have, he ministered for 40 years as a prophet for God, speaking for God to his people. And in 40 years, no one listened, no converts at all. 40 years of every day proclaiming God's truth. 40 years of being mistreated by his people. 40 years and nothing, nothing. If God never answers that prayer that you're holding on to, if God never works in the way that you really have hoped and desired, if it never works out exactly as you wanted, is he still enough for you? Is he still worthy for you? Would you still follow him even still? That's the idea and the question we have to ask ourselves all the time because his labor is not in vain. He is at work in and through you. We see from the people of Hebrews, that passage we read, these people who saw amazing things and God used in amazing ways. So much that he said, the world's not even worthy of them. What does it say at the end about them? 
none of them received what they were promised. None of them got to see the end of the story. And yet they were faithful. They were faithful to be in prison. They allowed themselves to be mistreated because they believed and they had a hope that was beyond this world. They had a hope beyond this world. They believed that what they did was not in vain. And what one day was faith will become sight. That is the promise for us. What you do for the Lord is not in vain. He is using it whether you see it or know it or not. So that's what we do. So who are we? He reminds us who we are. We're beloved. I can't hammer that point home if more if I could. You are beloved. We talked about it all last week. You are beloved of God. He doesn't look at you in anger and frustration and disappointment and discouragement. When he looks at you, if you are in Christ, he sees you as his child, as his bride whom he loves deeply and way more deeply than you could ever ask or imagine. He knows you more than anyone ever could. And because that, he loves you so much. And it's out of that that we do all this to do. If you have this backwards, you think if I do all these things, if I'm you know, steadfast and immovable, and if I'm always abounding in the work of the Lord, and I know it's not in vain, then God will love me. No, God loves me first. And because I'm loved, then I wanna live for him in such a way. But not only are we beloved, we're victorious. We have the victory in Christ, we're told. When Jesus on the cross says, it is finished, he meant it. We know the end of the story. You have the privilege and honor to know how the story ends, to know how all of this ends. When it's all said and done, we know with great confidence that Christ wins. Satan is vanquished and Jesus comes back to gather his people to be his bride and we get to be with him forever. And knowing that should change everything because the light and momentary troubles that we feel in this world are accomplishing a purpose, an eternal purpose for us. And some of those things don't feel light and momentary in the moment. But there is one who's already won the battle for you and me so we don't have to fight it anymore. And knowing that changes everything. As hard as it is to admit, I'm, I have to admit that I'm a Chicago Cubs fan. I've been a Chicago Cubs fan my whole life, which means you should just feel sorry for me because it's been years and years of misery and awful and terrible baseball forever and ever. A couple years back, they were playing in game seven of the World Series. I was convinced they were gonna lose because that's what Cubs do. It's what they do best. And it's late at night, I'm watching the game. I'm really into it and excited, except for the fact if you turn the TV on and put me on my couch, I fall asleep every time. It's like clockwork. So I'm falling asleep, I wake up, I miss like an inning. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. This is really important, it's a big deal. So I decide rather than run the risk of missing the entire game and waking up at 2.30 in the morning to some crazy something infomercial, I'm like, I'm going to bed, I'm gonna tape it. I'm gonna wake up like at five in the morning. I'm gonna watch it before anybody talks to me or anybody says anything so I know that we lost or won. Hopefully lost, hopefully won, but we lost. Get up that morning, super excited, but a little groggy. And I go straight to my phone as people do. Text, can you believe the Cubs won? I'm like, oh. Two ways I could have handled that. I could have been really mad at that person who's probably in this room right now. Or I could rejoice. Can I tell you right now? It's the most fun I've ever had watching a baseball game in my life. 
because I knew we won. When we were playing terrible, I was like, it doesn't matter, we won. Good, strike out, sure, keep doing that. Yeah, throw a wild pitch, errors, yeah, because we won. It changed everything for me. I loved every second of that game because we won. I already knew. For you and for I, for you and for me, what we need to understand is we've already won. We've already won. Because we've already won, we can live as Christ has called us to live. Because we're his beloved and because we are victorious, we can be a people who are steadfast, who are immovable, who are always abounding in the work of the Lord because our labor is not in vain. God, use it for his glory and for our good.